Section three of the Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume four by James Boswell, Section three. A clergyman whom he characterized as one who loved to say little oddities was affecting one day at a bishop's table a sort of slyness and freedom not in character and repeated as if part of the old man's wish a song by dr walter pope a verse bordering on licentiousness johnson rebuked him in the finest manner by first showing him that he did not know the passage he was aiming at and thus humbling him sir that is not the song it is thus and he gave it right then looking steadfastly on him sir there is a part of that song which i should wish to exemplify in my own life may i govern my passions with absolute sway Footnote may i govern my passion with an absolute sway and grow wiser and better as my strength wears away without gout or stone by a gentle decay the old man's wish was sung to sir roger de coverley by the fair one after the collation in which he ate a couple of chickens and drank a full bottle of wine what signifies our wishing wrote dr franklin i have sung that wishing song a thousand times when i was young and now find at fourscore that the three contraries have befallen me being subject to the gout and the stone and not being yet master of all my passions End of footnote. being asked if barnes knew a good deal of greek he answered i doubt sir he was un oculus in the kaikos footnote he uses the same image in the life of milton he might still be a giant among the pygmies the one-eyed monarch of the blind cumberland says that bentley hearing it maintained that barnes spoke greek almost like his mother tongue replied yes i do believe that barnes had as much greek and understood it about as well as an athenian blacksmith a passage in wool's life of dr wharton shows that barnes attempted to prove that homer and solomon were one and the same man but isaac disraeli says that it was reported that barnes not having money enough to publish his edition of homer wrote a poem the design of which is to prove that solomon was the author of the iliad to interest his wife who had some property to lend her aid towards the publication of so divine a work End of footnote. He used frequently to observe that men might be very eminent in a profession without our perceiving any particular power of mind in them in conversation. It seems strange, said he, 
that a man should see so far to the right, who sees so short a way to the left. Burke is the only man whose common conversation corresponds with the general fame which he has in the world. Take up whatever topic you please, he is ready to meet you. Footnote. The first time Suard saw Burke, who was at Reynolds's, Johnson touched him on the shoulder and said, Le grand Burke. End of footnote. A gentleman, by no means deficient in literature, having discovered less acquaintance with one of the classics than Johnson expected, when the gentleman left the room, he observed, You see now how little anybody reads. Mr. Langton, happening to mention his having read a good deal in Clonardus's Greek grammar, Why, sir, said he, who is there in this town who knows anything of Clonardus but you and I? And upon Mr. Langton's mentioning that he had taken the pains to learn by heart the epistle of St. Basil, which is given in that grammar as a praxis, Sir, said he, I never made such an effort to attain Greek. Footnote. Miss Hawkins says that Langton told her father that he meant to give his six daughters such a knowledge of Greek that while five of them employed themselves in feminine works, the sixth should read a Greek author for the general amusement. She describes how he would get into the most fluent recitation of half a page of Greek, breaking off for fear of wearying by saying, and so it goes on, accompanying his words with a gentle wave of his hand. End of footnote. Of Dodsley's public virtue, a poem, he said, it was fine blank, meaning to express his usual contempt for blank verse. However, this miserable poem did not sell, and my poor friend Doddy said, public virtue was not a subject to interest the age. Mr. Langton, when a very young man, read Dodsley's Cleone, a tragedy, to him, not aware of his extreme impatience to be read to. As it went on, he turned his face to the back of his chair and put himself into various attitudes which marked his uneasiness. At the end of an act, however, he said, Come, let's have some more. Let's go into the slaughterhouse again, Lanky. But I am afraid there is more blood than brains. Yet he afterwards said, When I heard you read it, I thought higher of its power of language. When I read it myself, I was more sensible of its pathetic effect. And then he paid it a compliment, which many will think very extravagant. Sir, said he, if Otway had written this play, no other of his pieces would have been remembered. Dodsley himself, upon this being repeated to him, said, It was too much. It must be remembered that Johnson always appeared not to be sufficiently sensible of the merit of Otway. Footnote. This assertion concerning Johnson's insensibility to the pathetic powers of Otway is too round 
I once asked him whether he did not think Otway frequently tender, when he answered, Sir, he is all tenderness. Burney, he describes Otway as one of the first names in the English drama. End of footnote. Snatches of reading, said he, will not make a Bentley or a Clark. They are, however, in a certain degree advantageous. I would put a child into a library where no unfit books are, and let him read at his choice. A child should not be discouraged from reading anything that he takes a liking to, from a notion that it is above his reach. If that be the case, the child will soon find it out and desist. If not, he of course gains the instruction, which is so much the more likely to come from the inclination with which he takes up the study. Though he used to censure carelessness with great vehemence, he owned that he once, to avoid the trouble of locking up five guineas, hid them. He forgot where, so that he could not find them. A gentleman who introduced his brother to Dr. Johnson was earnest to recommend him to the doctor's notice, which he did by saying, When we have sat together some time, you'll find my brother grow very entertaining. Sir, said Johnson, I can wait. When the rumour was strong that we should have a war because the French would assist the Americans, he rebuked a friend with some asperity for supposing it, saying, No, sir, national face is not yet sunk so low. In the latter part of his life, in order to satisfy himself whether his mental faculties were impaired, he resolved that he would try to learn a new language and fixed upon the low Dutch for that purpose. And this he continued till he had read about one half of Thomas a Kempis, and finding that there appeared no abatement in his power of acquisition, he then desisted, as thinking the experiment had been duly tried. Footnote. Johnson, it seems, took up this study in July 1773, he recorded that between Easter and Whitsuntide, he attempted to learn the Low Dutch language. My application, he continues, was very slight, and my memory very fallacious. The weather more than in my earlier years, I am not very certain. On his deathbed, he said to Mr. Hull, about two years since I feared that I had neglected God, and that then I had not a mind to give him, on which I set about to read Thomas a Kempis in Low Dutch, which I accomplished, and thence I judged that my mind was not impaired, Low Dutch having no affinity with any of the languages which I knew. End of footnote. Mr. Burke justly observed that this was not the most vigorous trial, Low Dutch being a language so near our own. Had it been one of the languages entirely different, he might have been very soon satisfied. Mr. Langton and he, having gone to see a Freemason's funeral procession when they were at Rochester, 
and some solemn music being played on French horns, he said, This is the first time that I have ever been affected by musical sounds, adding that the impression made upon him was of a melancholy kind. Mr. Langton saying that this effect was a fine one, Johnson, yes, if it softens the mind so as to prepare it for the reception of salutary feelings, it may be good, but inasmuch as it is melancholy per se, it is bad. Goldsmith had long a visionary project that some time or other, when his circumstances should be easier, he would go to Aleppo in order to acquire a knowledge, as far as might be, of any arts peculiar to the East and introduce them into Britain. When this was talked of in Dr. Johnson's company, he said, Of all men, Goldsmith is the most unfit to go out upon such an inquiry, for he is utterly ignorant of such arts as we already possess, and consequently could not know what would be accessions to our present stock of mechanical knowledge. Sir, he would bring home a grinding barrow, which you see in every street in London, and think that he had furnished a wonderful improvement. Footnote. One of Goldsmith's friends remembered his relating, about the year 1756, a strange quixotic scheme he had in contemplation of going to decipher the inscriptions on the written mountains, though he was altogether ignorant of Arabic, or the language in which they might be supposed to be written, Percy says that Goldsmith applied to the Prime Minister, Lord Bute, for a salary to enable him to execute the visionary project mentioned in the text. To prepare the way, he drew up that ingenious essay on this subject which was first printed in the ledger, and afterwards in his Citizen of the World. Percy adds that the Earl of Northumberland, who was Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, regretted that he had not been made acquainted with his plan, for he would have procured him a sufficient salary on the Irish establishment. Goldsmith, in his review of Van Egmont's Travels in Asia, says, Could we see a man set out upon this journey to Asia, not with an intent to consider rocks and rivers, but the manners and the mechanic inventions, and the imperfect learning of the inhabitants, resolved to penetrate into countries as yet little known, and eager to pry into all their secrets, with an heart not terrified at trifling dangers. If there could be found a man who could unite this true courage with sound learning, from such a character we might hope much information. Johnson would have gone to Constantinople, as he himself said, had he received his pension twenty years earlier. End of footnote. Greek, sir, said he, is like lace. Every man gets as much of it as he can. Footnote. It should be remembered that this was said twenty-five or thirty years ago, written in 1799, when lace was very generally worn, Malone. Greek and Latin, said Porson, are only luxuries. 
When Lord Charles Hay, after his return from America, was preparing his defence to be offered at the court martial which he had demanded, having heard Mr. Langton as high in expressions of admiration of Johnson as he usually was, he requested that Dr. Johnson might be introduced to him, and Mr. Langton, having mentioned it to Johnson, he very kindly and readily agreed and being presented by mr langton to his lordship while under arrest he saw him several times upon one of which occasions lord charles read to him what he had prepared which johnson signified his approbation of saying it is a very good soldierly defence johnson said that he had advised his lordship that as it was in vain to contend with those who were in possession of power if they would offer him the rank of lieutenant-general and a government it will be better judged to desist from urging his complaints it is well known that his lordship died before the sentence was made known johnson one day gave high praise to dr bentley's verses in dodsley's collection which he recited with his usual energy. Footnote. Dr. Johnson, in his Life of Cowley, says that these are the only English verses which Bentley is known to have written. I shall here insert them, and hope my readers will apply them. Who strives to mount Parnassus' hill, and thence poetic laurels bring, must first acquire due force and skill, must fly with swans or eagle's wing. Who nature's treasures would explore, her mysteries and arcana know, must high as lofty Newton soar, must stoop as delving woodward low. Who studies ancient laws and rites, tongues, arts and arms and history, must drudge like selden days and nights and in the endless labour die who travels in religious jars truth mixed with error shades with rays like whiston wanting picks or stars in ocean wide or sinks or strays but grant our hero's hope long toil and comprehensive genius crown all sciences all arts his spoil yet what reward or what renown envy innate in vulgar souls envy steps in and stops his rise envy with poisoned tarnish fouls his lustre and his worth decries he lives inglorious or in want to college and old books confined instead of learned he's called pedant dunces advanced he's left behind yet left content a genuine stoic he great without patron rich without south sea boswell in mr croker's octavo editions arts in the fifth stanza is changed into hearts james boswell jr gives the following reading of the first four lines of the last stanza not from Dodsley's collection, but from an earlier one called The Grove. Inglorious or by wants enthralled to college and old books confined, a pedant from his learning called, dunces 
advanced, he's left behind. End of footnote. Dr. Adam Smith, who was present, observed in his decisive, professorial manner, very well, very well. Johnson, however, added, yes, they are very well, sir, but you may observe in what manner they are well. They are the forcible verses of a man of a strong mind, but not accustomed to write verse, for there is some uncouthness in the expression. Footnote. Bentley, in the preface to his edition of Paradise Lost, says, Sunt et mihi camina, mi quoque dicunt vatem pastores, sed non ego credulus illis. The difference between Johnson and Smith is apparent even in this slight instance. Smith was a man of extraordinary application and had his mind crowded with all manner of subjects, but the force, acuteness and vivacity of Johnson were not to be found there. He had book-making so much in his thoughts and was so chary of what might be turned to account in that way that he once said to Sir Joshua Reynolds that he made it a rule when in company never to talk of what he understood. Beauclerc had for a short time a pretty high opinion of Smith's conversation. Garrick, after listening to him for a while, as to one of whom his expectations had been raised, turned slyly to a friend and whispered to him, What say you to this, eh? Flabby, I think. Boswell. Dr. A. Carlyle says, Smith's voice was harsh and enunciation thick, approaching to stammering. His conversation was not colloquial, but like lecturing. He was the most absent man in company that I ever saw, moving his lips and talking to himself and smiling in the midst of large companies. If you all waked him from his reverie and made him attend to the subject of the conversation, he immediately began a harangue and never stopped till he told you all he knew about it with the utmost philosophical ingenuity. Dugald Stewart says that his consciousness of his tendency to absence rendered his manner somewhat embarrassed in the company of strangers but to his intimate friends his peculiarities added an inexpressible charm to his conversation while they displayed in the most interesting light the artless simplicity of his heart End of footnote. drinking tea one day at garrick's with mr langton he was questioned if he was not somewhat of a heretic as to shakespeare said garrick I doubt he is a little of an infidel. Footnote. Garrick himself was a good deal of an infidel. End of footnote. Sir, said Johnson, I will stand by the lines I have written on Shakespeare in my prologue at the opening of your theatre. Mr. Langton suggested that in the line, and panting time toiled after him in vain, Johnson might have had in his eye the passage in the Tempest, where Prospero says of Miranda, She will outstrip all praise and make it halt behind her. Footnote, the Tempest, Act 4, Scene 1. In The Rambler, 
Johnson writes of men who have borne opposition down before them, and left emulation panting behind. He quotes the following couplet by Dryden. Fate after him below with pain did move, and victory could scarce keep pace above. Young in the last day, book one, had written, Words all in vain pant after the distress. End of footnote. Johnson said nothing. Garrick then ventured to observe, I do not think that the happiest line in the praise of Shakespeare. Johnson exclaimed, smiling, Prosaical rogues! Next time I write, I'll make both time and space pant. Footnote. I am sorry to see in the Transactions of the Royal Society of Edinburgh, Volume 2, an essay on the character of Hamlet, written, I should suppose, by a very young man, though called reverend, who speaks with presumptuous petulance of the first literary character of his age, amid a cloudy confusion of words which hath of late too often passed in Scotland for metaphysics, he thus ventures to criticise one of the noblest lines in our language. Dr. Johnson has remarked that time toiled after him in vain, but I should apprehend that this is entirely to mistake the character. Time toils after every great man, as well as after Shakespeare. The workings of an ordinary mind keep pace, indeed, with time. They move no faster, they have their beginning, their middle, and their end. But superior natures can reduce these into a point. They do not indeed suppress them, but they suspend, or they lock them up in the breast. The learned society under whose sanction such gabble is ushered into the world would do well to offer a premium to anyone who will discover its meaning. Boswell. End of footnote. It is well known that there was formerly a rude custom for those who were sailing upon the Thames to accost each other as they passed, in the most abusive language they could invent, generally, however, with as much satirical humour as they were capable of producing. Addison gives a specimen of this ribaldry in number 383 of The Spectator when Sir Roger de Coverley and he are going to Spring Garden. Footnote, May the 29th, 1662, took boat and to Foxhall, where I had not been a great while, to the old spring garden, and there walked along. The place was afterwards known as Foxhall and Vauxhall. End of footnote. Johnson was once eminently successful in this species of contest. A fellow, having attacked him with some horse raillery, Johnson answered him thus, Sir, your wife, under pretence of keeping a body house, is a receiver of stolen goods. Footnote. One that wouldst be aboard in way of good service and are nothing but the composition of a knave, beggar, coward, panda, King Lear, act two, scene two. End of footnote. One evening, when he and Mr. Burke and Mr. Langton were in company together, 
and the admirable scolding of Timon of Athens was mentioned, this instance of Johnson's was quoted, and thought to have at least equal excellence. As Johnson always allowed the extraordinary talents of Mr. Burke, so Mr. Burke was fully sensible of the wonderful powers of Johnson. Mr. Langton recollects having passed an evening with both of them, when Mr. Burke repeatedly entered upon topics which it was evident he would have illustrated with extensive knowledge and richness of expression, but Johnson always seized upon the conversation, in which, however, he acquitted himself in a most masterly manner. As Mr. Burke and Mr. Langton were walking home, Mr. Burke observed that Johnson had been very great that night. Mr. Langton joined in this, but added, he could have wished to hear more from another person, plainly intimating that he meant Mr. Burke. Oh, no, said Mr. Burke, it is enough for me to have rung the bell to him. Footnote. Yet W. G. Hamilton said, Burke understands everything but gaming and music. In the House of Commons, I sometimes think him only the second man in England. Out of it he is always the first. Bismarck once rang the bell to old Prince Metternich. I listened quietly, he said, to all his stories, merely jogging the bell every now and then till it rang again. That pleases these talkative old men. Dr. Bush, end of footnote. Beauclair, having observed to him of one of their friends, that he was awkward at counting money. Why, sir, said Johnson, I am likewise awkward at counting money. But then, sir, the reason is plain. I have had very little money to count. He had an abhorrence of affectation. Talking of old Mr. Langton, of whom he said, Sir, you will seldom see such a gentleman. Such are his stores of literature, such his knowledge in divinity, and such his exemplary life. He added, and sir, he has no grimace, no gesticulation, no bursts of admiration on trivial occasions. He never embraces you with an overacted cordiality. Footnote. Johnson had perhaps Dr. Wharton in mind. End of footnote. Being in company with a gentleman who thought fit to maintain Dr. Berkeley's ingenious philosophy that nothing exists but as perceived by some mind, when the gentleman was going away, Johnson said to him, Pray, sir, don't leave us, for we may perhaps forget to think of you, and then you will cease to exist. Footnote. Oblivion is a kind of annihilation. Sir Thomas Brown's Christian Morals, section 21, end of footnote, end of section 3.